Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guests today have been married since 1972. Trained as psychotherapists and relationship counselors, they have worked with individuals, couples, groups, and organizations since 1975. They have lectured and taught at learning institutes throughout the USA and internationally. They've authored five books, including the bestseller, 101 Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married, Simple Lessons to Make Love Last, with more than 100,000 sold. They are founders and co-directors of Bloomwork based in Santa Cruz, California. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Linda and Charlie Bloom. Delighted to be with you. Thank you for inviting us. Great to be here. Thanks. I'm glad to have you. And as always, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is, what took you so long to write that first book? Well, we were so busy raising kids and raising our business, that we had a lot of irons in the fire. We both had busy counseling practices, doing psychotherapy and marriage counseling with people. And we were back in those days teaching 30 workshops a year between the evening workshops and the weekend workshops and the five-day workshops. And so we were so busy, it was hard to find the time. When the kids left home, And when we uh, really made it a priority to sit down and write down some of the wonderful ideas, that's when everything changed. But we were 57 years old before our first book got published. So we were late bloomers. So to speak. You you have the perfect name for it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We actually, um, the, the first book that we got published was when we were 57, but there was another book that we began and actually wrote for the most part, the main text um, several years before then. Um, But we just never, we never finished it. And we ended up finishing it later on. It was, it turned out to be our third book. Um, But um, yeah, in terms of the ones that we got published, that was the first one. You know, I hear from a lot of authors who say, well, I wrote that book when I was in college or in graduate school or and during my MFA and I put it in a drawer and then I wrote another one before that. And then I brought it out. So I think mm-hmm. we can write out of sequence sometimes and and bring those out as as the time is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Keep those old drafts. 
You never know when you might want to call them up. We had shown it to an agent who we respected. And she said, that's a memoir. Nobody's going to want to read your memoir. They don't know who you are. You better put yourself on the map first and do it afterwards. So Mm. we followed her advice. Well, obviously, you're writing about topics that we all need in our relationships. And I wish that I'd known about your work a long time ago, because you might have saved me from a marriage or two. (laughs) No, you're not the first interviewer who's told us that, believe it or not. (laughs) I bet. Let's talk about the techniques that you use as writing partners, because we don't always interview um, people who write together or um, especially couples. Yeah, well, um, that's a very important question because there's, um, you know, we've both written stuff alone and uh, we can both attest to the fact that it's a totally different process. (laughs) When you're working with somebody else, you just have everything your way. Yeah, yeah. Well, until the editor finds it, but but you know, um, we have very different. Well, we have different personalities, and we have different writing styles too. And um, uh, we got to discover what they were in the process of doing it, because you know we hadn't really had enough experience writing together when when we really started doing our first books. And um, what we found is that we have certain strengths, each one of us, and um, certain places where we could use some support from the other person. And it was working out those differences um, in a way that didn't leave either one of us feel judged or criticized um, because we wanted the process to be as, as smooth as possible. And uh, it required a lot of communication with each other. We had to practice the things that we were writing about in the book, about you know not being defensive when somebody says something to you that upsets you, uh, uh, listening without judgment, um, not interrupting. I mean, we had to go through all of that stuff, and um, it was. Uh, you know, it, it was challenging. And, uh, well, Linda can talk a little bit more about this, but she's more of a detailed person, and which is really good because she can give great examples and she can get into the specifics. And I am more of um, a broader perspective, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it was kind of integrating those two styles because they both were important. I have a, a strength, a signature strength that I'm organized. It's how my mind works. I've got a concrete sequential mind. So I see the whole book and I have an outline and I work from an outline. <laughs> He's got an abstract random mind and he sees the big overview, but not the details so much. Mm-hmm. And I am willing to face the blank screen and the blank page And I'm not intimidated by that. And I put things down that are really rough. We brainstorm ideas and I take notes and I put it all down. And then he comes along and beautifies it because he's the silver tongue poet. And he was the English major. He has the gift of language. So I do the rough draft, the the first stuff to get things rolling. And then he comes and refines things and make them more literary. I think the key is that we both really understand and appreciate um, 
that even though our styles are different, and even though sometimes we kind of chafe against it because, you know, everyone likes to have things going the way they like to, um, that we really um, respect each other's input and that we need each other. You know, that no, neither one of us, uh, we both believe that we could not put out the kind of writing that we do, um, the, the, the quality of it, without the other person. Uh, you know, we're both clear about that. And that it helps to keep in mind. Well, you're really touching me today because you obviously have a long marriage and strong working partnership. And apparently you take your own advice that you've written in this book. Yes, we sometimes when we teach our classes, and it's also true when we write together, the medium is the message. Do you know that people sense it when they read the book co-authored by us, that we respect the differences, we have different strengths, and we bring our strengths to bear. And every great relationship does that. You know, you lean on the signature straits of the other person. And one of the reasons that we're attracted to that person of all the thousands of people that we could be attracted to is because some very deep, wise part of us, unconsciously, mostly, senses that they have strengths we don't have and that we want to learn from them. If we can open to the lessons that they bring to us, sometimes we've got some resistance to doing that. You know, they can be our tough life lessons. But if we can open and be patient with the process, we both really get to have our lives enhanced by that. You know, not not depending on the other person as much as learning from the other person. Mm-hmm. Well, this really worked for you two. And I, I'm just fascinated by therapists who are married to each other and how you use your techniques on each other. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like we're using them at each other. Um, You can (laughs) diagnose them. (laughs) But um, it's, it's a practice. I mean, uh, writing itself is a practice and it requires discipline. It requires the willingness to override some of your, um, uh, desires that you know take you away from I, I have you know a lot of friends who write and you know many of them say it's amazing how easy it is to find something that's more attractive than sitting down uh to the blank page <laughs> and, and writing I mean like I look forward to washing dishes you know <laughs> uh, changing the cat box I mean there's so many things that seem to be more compelling sometimes than writing. But when you have a partner and you have certain agreements, um, that can be really supportive, really helpful. Because, you know, some days one person, you know, is is on it and ready to go. But if you have an agreement, if the other person isn't, you know, they can be um, with the right touch, you know, they can be encouraged to kind of come on and join me. It's time or, you know, whatever. And I'm such an extrovert, you know, I am a collaborateur, I'm relationship oriented, and I need to talk through the material. 
And Charlie's more introverted. So I think it would come more easily to him to write alone, but I would need somebody to play with. That enhances the experience for me. Be too lonely to sit and write that book by myself. I think maybe most writers are introverted and they can operate very independently. So when we talk through the material, that's exciting to me. Do you know? And that that really lights me up. Well, you're holding each other accountable. And and I think that that is what a lot of us need. And we don't have that partner to do that for us. So, you know, I, I love interviewing authors and talking to them now instead of sitting in the seat and, and putting my words on paper. So I need to get back to writing sometimes or have a, a, a partner who'll hold me accountable. Yeah. And, and holding somebody accountable can be a delicate thing because there's a fine line between holding them accountable and coercing them or judging them or pushing them. And, you know, none of us want to be controlled. And um, it requires a light touch, but a clear and firm touch at the same time. Well, once you wrote this first manuscript, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent, decide to choose a hybrid, a small press, or did you self-publish? No, we didn't self-publish. We used New World Library Press, and we didn't use an agent. We had a woman working in our office as an administrative assistant, and she said, oh, I have a friend who has a publishing house. I'm going to mention you to them that you have a book. And so the head of the publishing house left a message on our voicemail, but I didn't know it was for me. I thought it was for her. I almost vanished the message. <laughs> it was a close call. And I said, you know, your your friend left a message for you. And she said, oh, that message isn't for me. That's for you. That's my publisher. Do you know my friend who's the publisher? So we called back and we said we had a manuscript and he said, come over. And we brought the manuscript and he really liked it and signed a contract with us. So we didn't have an agent for the first four. We did have an agent for our most recent book that came out Valentine's Day. Yeah. So um, I, I can recommend both ways, but I don't think it's necessary to have an agent. We did fine. And I really think very highly of New World Library Press. They did an amazing, wonderful editing job for us when we worked with them. Well, we have so many options these days as authors. We can go in so many different directions. And a lot of people want to be with a big five. You know, that's been the dream of many authors. But, you know, that's a a crazy route to take and take several years, even if you get a book deal and they're requiring their authors to do most of their promotion as well. So we're kind of all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The field has changed so much since our first book came out. Um, it, it's, it's just a completely different game now. And um, <clears throat> a lot of what people have uh, understood to be kind of the root or their expectations of getting um, a publisher, a big publisher, um, those conditions no longer exist. And you really do have to be willing to take a lot more responsibility um, financially, even even with a with a big company sometimes in terms of being able to 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 put out certain uh, amount of your own resources to support the promotion because. Um, 
the support that we got for our first book is not readily available anymore for most 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 writers. You really got unless you're a celebrity, uh, most authors don't even earn out their advance, which I'm understanding has has gotten smaller and smaller. And then you only receive about 10% of the proceeds. So I think that's why a lot of authors are turning to other options. Yeah, I think the difference between what you would get on your own uh, compared to a publisher um, has really diminished because the publishers are, because the field has shrunken because so many publishing companies have gone out of business. Um, uh, the, the difference is, is much smaller than it used to be. It used to be, well, if you did it on your own, you're going to get this, this result, but it's going to you know, cost you something. Uh, but if you get a publisher, they're going to cover that. But now the gap is much, much smaller. Mm-hmm. And, and the return in terms of the royalties, um, you know, if you can generate the kind of publicity that you need to, to, to get the sales, you'll get a much higher percentage per book. And the attitude, the, the attitude towards self-publishing has really shifted a lot. And yeah. it's perfectly respectable to self-publish now. A lot of people are choosing to self-publish, they, even if they, they have an offer. Publisher and yeah. They choose not to because they want the power and control and influence, yeah. the timetable to suit them. Yeah, that's the other thing. Amazon has really changed the world as far as publishing and and people who want to just have their books on Kindle and, and not even have hard copies, you know, can do that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How did writing your first book, publishing your first book, change your process of writing? You're now on book number five and you said number six coming up. Yes. Well, it had a tremendous impact on my confidence because it sold so big. It was just a runaway bestseller, which is so uh, so startling for a first-time author or any-time author. And so um, I hadn't seen myself as a particularly creative person. I never thought I would write a book. But because we got so much feedback from people that it touched them and it inspired them and the sales spoke for themselves, that um, it, it egged me on to write more. And it had spillover effect into my confidence teaching and my confidence counseling and just a general sense of my life. So when I have friends who they think they're going to write a book, I'm a strong advocate. Do it, do it, do it, because it was such a leap for me in my sense of self. And it becomes your calling card. You know, you can get your message out to far more people than those who come in and sit on your couch. And it opened doors. You know, we we had been teaching at Esalen before we had a book published, but I sent a copy to the program director at Kripalu on the East Coast in Massachusetts, and she loved the book, and she said, come, and gave us a date, and we've been teaching there ever since. Yeah, I, I think that the um, confidence factor is huge. Um, we, we have a friend who... Um, got a book published a few years before ours 
and, and it was a, a nonfiction book in the same field. And uh, uh, we, he put a lot of time and energy into it. He had a co co-author too. And um, uh, we loved the book. We thought, it, you know, it was great. And um, for whatever reason, and who knows, um, it didn't sell. And um, he he got very discouraged. And, um, he, you know, he had thoughts and ideas about future books. But he got so discouraged that he decided it wasn't worth it. He, he didn't want to go through the effort the, the time, the potential um, heartache of putting so much into it and then not getting the kind of recognition that, that he felt and we felt too, the book deserved. It was a really great book. Um, and um, we also know people, um, most people don't hit it big the first time they put a book out there. Um, and everybody responds differently to what they consider a failure sometimes. So some people don't consider it a failure. They consider it a learning experience to see what could we have done differently, which is, I think, a really important question, um, rather than to just say, forget it, it's not worth it. I don't want to, I don't want to go through this again. Um, but uh, you know, some of those those people will get back on the horse again after they get bucked off of it and and they will um uh, you know, hang in there. And sometimes, you know, the second or third attempt can bring great results. Um, it really depends upon whether you feel that you've got something <clears throat> to say that needs to be said, mm -hmm. you know, that really will, if it's nonfiction, if it's something that will really enhance people's lives in a meaningful way, and you really feel uh, a passion for putting that out, uh, or if it's fiction, if, if there's something that you feel could really grab people and and hold their attention and and really give them an experience of of reading itself that would be fulfilling and meaningful, I think that's that's the key to being able to to really put out the kind of focused intentional commitment that it requires. If you've got that kind of juice, then um, even disappointments, they'll still be disappointing, but they won't necessarily stop you from continuing. And I think that's that's the main thing. I agree. And, and I have been told that we need a series, that you need at least three books before you really start earning out. And most authors don't understand that. And yeah. and I I think we have to be, you know, very thoughtful about what writing a book means to us. It's not going to probably be an, an Oprah's pick or, you know, unless you're a celebrity, we're not going to end up on the New York times bestsellers list. Um, is there, there are something like 2 million titles a year published in, in the U S I mean, how do we even, you know, stick our hand up and say, would, would somebody read mine? You know, so that's where um, the publicity comes into play. And, and we mentioned that. And mm -hmm. I wonder about your challenges. Have you found any publicity that's worked for you or maybe something you've tried that didn't work? The most recent, we hired a very classy publicist, and she had a colleague 
who knew how to do digital marketing, which we didn't do with the other books. And so we did a big marketing campaign for this most recent book. And I really enjoyed it. She promised us when we made the contract with her that she would get us at least 20 podcast interviews. And she ended up getting us 30. So she outdid herself. And we had a ball with the podcast interviewers because like you, they had a lot of juicy questions for us. So it gave us a good jumping off place to make our contribution to the listening audience. And we learned a lot from the digital marketing people. I had no idea about how to do Facebook and Instagram. And she said, you have to do small pieces. So I'm thinking small pieces, five minutes. She said, no, 30 seconds. So we we did a lot of um, just sound bites, you know, three sentences and give them the distilled version. And so that was really helpful to me to distill down to essence the message that I want to give. And for months, we we went posting on social media every day. And now we're down to once a week. We went down from seven to six to five, four to three, two to one. And now we're not doing a big, huge presence on social media, but we know how to do it. So when the next book comes out, we'll we'll amp it up again for a temporary period of time. You know, it, it's so true that authors can write 70,000 words, 80,000 words for a novel. But when we're asked to write two log lines or a blurb about the book, then that's the most difficult. It's harder. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, much harder to take an idea and condense it into a soundbite that is really limited when you have the luxury of being able to, you know, spend more time and give more words to, to something. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the passage you've brought to share today and then read so we can hear your tone and voice in your book. Okay, so this is an end to arguing 101 valuable lessons for all relationships. A lot of them we illustrate from our own personal relationship, what we've learned. We had a lot to learn about how to handle differences. We're real different and we used to be hotheads and fight a lot. And that's part of our past now, I'm happy to say. So these are just small little chapters, 101 of them, distilled down to essence. And the one that I chose is called, Are You Checking In or Checking Out? And this is about being present with yourself and checking in to see what you're experiencing and then taking the time very deliberately in a committed manner regularly about checking in with the people who are important to you in your life so they know what's going on with you. And I'm still constantly amazed after being in the field for 40 you know, years plus, how many couples live under the same roof, sleep in the same bed, and they don't check in with each other. And then they wonder why they're in trouble. They haven't stayed current about things that bother them or what they love and enjoy about each other. And they, they drift apart and they start feeling lonely and disconnected. Before you start. Yes. I just want to give an example of checking in. Please do. Okay, um, I'm just checking in with you to let you know that um, I'm about to get some water. Uh-huh, I'll um, have some for you. Oh, wonderful. Uh-huh. See, ask, and <laughs> I didn't even have to ask. So that's the power of checking in. 
Just want everybody to understand that. <laughs> so one of the things that we do is we write contrasting what successful couples are doing versus the ones that are not so successful. Because while we're in relationship, we might as well go for the gold and be among the successful couples. We just need a little nudge in the right direction. One thing successful couples do that struggling couples don't do enough of is checking in. This simple practice can mean the difference between relationship fulfillment and relationship hell. Checking in refers to the habit of taking a brief break from our daily responsibilities and redirecting attention to our inner experience. During a check-in, we focus on ourselves rather than external concerns. The purpose is to bring a non-judging awareness to our thoughts, emotions, and physical sensations and an unconditional acceptance of whatever we are experiencing. And if we can do this with ourselves, then we can bring the message to our best friend, do you know, a sister, a brother, a close relative, or our lover. This simple act of connecting can prevent irritations from turning into major breakdowns a little connection can go a very long way. Yeah. That's very nice. And I, I love your example, Charlie, checking in. <laughs> what would be a, a example of checking out? Checking out is when we're um, with somebody, but our attention is outside of the moment. So we're we're distracted by something. We're not attending to them. They're not experiencing our undivided attention. <clears throat> One of the things that we've discovered in, in relationships is that what uh what people really what most people really want most of is to feel connected to their partner. And you know, so often what we've heard from people is uh, like if we're working with a couple and one of them says, you know, you know, I just I just want you to be here with me. You say, well, here I am. You know, what's and it's usually the woman who's making the request and the guy who's defending his. Well, here I am. You know, I'm here. But he's not really fully here. His body is here and he thinks he's here. But she's not feeling that quality of experience within herself that you feel when somebody really is making eye contact with you, when their mind is not over there on, you know, you know, when, when are we going to be done with this? Or, you know, thinking about what he's going to do next. Or, um, but they're just present with themselves. And, and then, then we can have that feeling of, of connection with each other. So, so checking out is when, when we are redirecting our attention from this moment here, wherever, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be in a relationship. It's just, you know, I, I could be driving uh, and, and I'm daydreaming and, and not noticing, uh, not paying attention. 
It's where our attention goes. And when our attention is not in alignment with our present experience, where that's what we call checking out. And, and you know, the, the antidote to that is, is two words, show up. Mm-hmm. And this is, the, up. this is the antidote to the epidemic of loneliness that we're experiencing in the culture. Murthy, you know, the, the Surgeon General is doing a wonderful job and his book is beautiful about illustrating and identifying how pervasive the epidemic of loneliness is. And it isn't just, you know, these massive amount of people who live in an apartment or a home alone and feel isolated in their home alone. There are people who are married and living in families who still don't feel really connected and they feel lonely, even though there are people right there. And so we we make a big deal when we teach, we make a big deal when we do counseling, we make a big deal when we write our books about how important it is to check in with ourselves and then cultivate the courage to be willing to tell the truth, to show up, to pay attention and to speak the truth without blame and judgment. And those kinds of connections with the people who are most important to us are the most effective antidote to feeling isolated and alone and abandoned. I mean, those are just such vital issues today. And I'm sure you've seen uh, that issue affected, that loneliness affected by the screens that everybody is looking at and and using instead of talking face-to-face with someone. Right. Yeah, there's a huge difference in terms of what people experience, even physiologically, not just that it feels different, but the, the body is actually producing different kinds of chemicals when there is a meaning, meaningful, physically emotional connection with another person. We are wired to uh, be interdependent and to be connected <clears throat> in those ways. And when that need, and it is a need, it's not just a desire. Uh, when that need isn't adequately fulfilled, it, it affects not only the way we feel, but it it affects our health. You know, people who don't experience sufficient meaningful connection are much more vulnerable to, to getting sick. Their immune system isn't as strong uh, as it would be otherwise. Um, you know, so so the, the the tendency to be distracted has really uh, become magnified. You know, in the age of hypertechnology. And there's so many, so much of what we see with couples is that their main, what, what they're checking into is their phones. But in doing so, they're interrupting the possibility of checking uh, checking in on a more human level with, with other people. And there's a tremendous amount, a huge body of scientific research that will verify that the happiest places in the world and the healthiest places in the world, Blue Zones, Butner's done a beautiful job of identifying the characteristics of the people who are the long-lived people who are really healthy, you know, after 100 years old. These people are very deeply connected to family and community. 
So the the connections are giving this, you know, love cocktail and their body is being bathed in these live messages. So there's less cancer and less heart disease and less hospitalizations and less medications. And the, and the body of evidence is huge now verifying that when we keep our closest relationships in good shape, regular, daily, you know, connections, that's what's going to give us health into our later years. Well, you and Charlie are certainly uh, inspiring all of us today with your own relationship and how y'all are connected in spite of all of the the many activities and the many books and, and the uh, counseling that you do. So thank you for that. I'm glad. I'm glad it's so apparent. We've, we've worked hard to grow a beautiful relationship and we've co-created something that I'm really proud of. And we had humble beginnings. Let me assure you that we didn't look into this. We, we earned our way in and it's one of the things that we teach when we write and when we teach and when we counsel is that uh, if you've got some fire in the belly to do the work, awesome things are available to you more than you even let yourself vision that you can be among the happiest couples. We sometimes call them the blue ribbon couples or the Olympic athletes of marriage. Yeah. And it's a piece of work. Yeah. I just, I just want to tie this in with the, you know, the, theme of writing and particularly of uh, writing with a writing partner mm-hmm. um, or being part of a writing group uh, where there's mutual support provided. Um, you know, like Linda said, I, I, I tend to be more, more introverted. She's more extroverted. So, so um, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable writing. I'm more comfortable writing alone. Um, than she is. Um, But I find that it's much more, it it provides a lot of valuable input um, and support just when when we write things together. For example, um, uh, our our, uh, memoir, we, we we wrote together, but we didn't write, you know, we didn't sit down together and, and write it that, uh, you know, working on the same piece. We did alternate chapters in the book. One would be my experience and the other one would be Linda's. And um, and then, you know, we, we would basically, we wouldn't integrate the material. We would just keep the chapters separate, but we would, you know, give input to each other you know, we would kind of just to make sure that we were both staying in the same time period when we were writing. Um, but but then um, another way of, of co-writing together um, is something that, that we found work because of our different styles of her being more detailed and my being more global, um, where we would, we would write and... Um, uh, kind of craft what we were writing with input from each other so, so that we were doing it cooperatively and and kind of be editing along the way. But, you know, the, the challenge in that for us, and I think in for a lot of people, is 
as writers, we all, most of us are sensitive to criticism mm -hmm. and some, um, some, some people more sensitive than others. And to give feedback to somebody in a skillful way is really, really important. And you now I was thinking maybe we might want to say a little bit about how to provide skillful feedback. I'm fond of the sandwich. And the sandwich is you lead with something that's beautiful about their writing, and then you deliver the tough message that this, this could be improved and this is the way I think it could be even more beautiful than it is. And then you end with something positive. It goes down a little... <laughs> A little easier to to hear it that way. Got to find something positive, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I just love this because you two are certainly reaping the results of all the work that you've put in over the years and and are our role models for everyone who knows you, I'm sure. And the way that we can get to know you is through these books that you've written. That's yeah. cer certainly a legacy that you're leaving for the world. You know, a lot of people who write about relationship are pretty closeted about their own personal experience. But in book number one, about a third of those stories are us. And the others are about friends of ours and clients and students of ours. And the memoir is a pretty gory story about when we almost threw in the towel and ended our marriage because we had an irreconcilable difference that just wouldn't give way. And we came pretty close to, to quitting. And then, you know, it's a gory story with all the details about how awful we fought. And uh, But it's got a really happy ending because we ended up that the trust was even greater than before. And so, you know, we we find when we teach, when we tell our before and after stories, they're so inspirational to our students. And they say, well, look how screwed up they were and how happy they are now. We could do at least that well, that we decided we would be self-revelatory in the books as well. And people seem to appreciate that, yes. that we don't set ourselves up as the experts, you know, above everybody else. We're learning, we're learning along with everyone. And there's so much to learn about relationship. Well, you know, perfection is intimidating and we don't want to to just see the finished product. We want to know the steps that it takes to get there. So I think that's what y'all definitely do. Yeah. And this has been such a great visit. I could just speak to y'all for hours and hours. I might need to sign up uh, for one of your courses, but as, <laughs> we'd love to have you. As always, our last interview question on Authors Over 50 is, are writers over 50 are a unique set? Do you have advice for writers 50 and above? Well, I, I consider writers who are, you know, in their 50s youngsters. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and we know people who are writing well into their 90s, getting books published many of whom didn't even begin until they were in the last quarter of their lives. So, um, you know, like they say, uh, age is just a number, you know, it, it's, it, it um, don't, don't be dis discouraged by that. Um, I think that, um, I think that we all have something to offer that is unique because it came through our unique being and and we have our own unique ways of expressing it 
and and you know just to to be um to be mindful of whether you really do feel that you've got something that you want to say as opposed to well you know are, are they are they going to uh is a publisher going to buy this book or you know you you can worry about that that afterwards it's not that it that's not an unreasonable question to ask but if you feel that there is a passion for something um don't squelch that by uh becoming too quote realistic because um like linda said our first book did well um and neither one of us expected it to um and particularly in the field that we work in uh first question publishers or the first thing you hear from a publisher is another relationship book <laughs> field is already overcrowded with them and yeah sometimes a field can be really overcrowded with a subject or, or a topic that you uh, are writing about but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't give it a shot anyway so my advice to the people who are 50 and above who are thinking of writing a book but they're on the fence is do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. You don't want to get to the end of your life and look back and say you blew it, do you know? So I sometimes play a little mind game with myself, which I vision ahead when I'm 95 and I'm kind of bent over and I'm, I'm crank with a cane. And I don't hear it too well, but I like to think that when I'm at the end of my life and I'm looking back that I did the important things that I really wanted to do. And if they're extroverted like me and they think it's going to be too lonely to sit down and write, get yourself a writing buddy or get yourself a writing group, you know, ask your friends to help and support you if you need support and trust that uh, your message is an important one. And even if people have spoken about this before, that nobody's going to say it the way you uniquely will say it. And that's important to remember that your story is very personal and unique and people need to hear it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And you can always buy good editing. Do you know some, some of the authors and that we respect didn't even write their books. They gave a box of tapes and some handwritten notes and the ghostwriter put the whole beautiful book together. So that's a possibility too. They don't have to feel like the burden is all on them alone. You've certainly given us a lot of food for thought today. I know that y'all are writing on topics that are so vital to this country and everywhere in the world. We have an epidemic of failed marriages and uh, young people who don't think marriage is even necessary. And so I'm just thrilled to have you on this podcast to speak to everyone and be a role model and certainly a great legacy for all of us with your books. So thank you for, for sharing with us today. And we're happy to count you among our authors over 50. Thank you for yeah. having us. For I enjoyed us. the interview. Keep up the good work. And you as well. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. 
And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.